All right, the Puritans. Has anybody heard of the Puritans before? Other than time here. Anybody heard of the Puritans before? Normally, they're, they're known by what? Very strict, right? Even we, we have the word in English, puritanical. You're being very puritanical, which usually indicates you're being judgmental or self-righteous. We all have to read, if you went to public school, you know, you have to read, what's, what's the book called? Scarlet Letter, which is, you know, the, the Puritans in the Scarlet Letter, they, they just want to punish. They just want to put people in the stockade, hang people, burn the witches. And, and often the, the Salem witch trials are what people remember the American Puritans for. In fact, until recently, you couldn't find a good theological church history type of book on the American Puritans. Most of it is either government, they came to America and started this new country, or on the Salem witch trials. Now, there's plenty on the English Puritans that's been around a while, so, but not so much on the English. Well, we're going to find out that while the term Puritan was a derogatory word, it ends up being a good word to describe the movement that they started. We ought to really be thankful for the Puritans and read a lot. This is one of my favorite times in church history. So let's talk about how they started. We did discuss this last week when we looked at Bloody Mary and how she persecuted and killed over 300 Protestants. Mary was a Roman Catholic who gets put into power after the Reformation had hit England. And she's so upset at what happened with her father and mother and and all these Protestants stirring things up that she kills 300 of them by burning them at the stake. Well, many of them left. Many Protestant teachers and pastors left. They went to Geneva. They learned of Calvin's Reformation there. They learned from Beza, and they brought that back, like John Knox did to Scotland, and continued to reform the churches. The name Puritan comes from the early 1560s, and this was during Elizabeth I's reign. So after Bloody Mary... They finally get a Protestant. She stays on the throne for a long time. That's Elizabeth I. And in that time, the Protestantism really flourishes in England. But there are a group of people that want to continue reforming the church. In other words, they're not happy by going halfway, halfway Protestant, halfway Catholic, which is pretty much what the Anglican church was and is today in some ways. There was a group of Anglicans, a group of people who wanted to continue reforming the church And they were called Puritans as a derogatory term. In other words, you guys are Puritans. All you care about is pure church, pure living. It's sort of like today, right? You think you're holier than now because you study true doctrine. Because you study the Bible all the time. You don't talk about feelings. Well, that's a good thing. As long as we're not legalistic or or self-righteous about it. It's a good thing to purify the church. And so they were convinced that the English Reformation was incomplete, had not gone far enough, and that certain Catholic practices were still being tolerated. There were still people wearing all these garments and robes and burning candles and incense and sprinkling holy water and and putting statues in the church. And they asked me too many questions to answer. That was it. That was it, right? Hard questions, too. Like, why did God create Satan? Knowing that he would fall into temptation, or he would lead mankind into temptation. I can't tell you how I answered it. You were either there or you weren't. Sorry, guys. So they want to continue going further, and this is a good thing. And remember, in church history, what I'm doing now is tracing the lineage up to our church, or as close as we can to our lifetimes, along the stream that we come from. We're not going to trace all streams, so that's why we went from the Reformation in Germany, to Geneva with Calvin, and now we came to England. We're not covering the other countries of Europe. 
We're going to go through the Puritans and to America, hopefully even today. So they were influenced by the Reformers in Europe. The Reformers in Europe were generally Calvinistic. Remember, Arminianism had not taken off yet. That comes around the time of the Puritans with the Arminian movement in the Dutch countries, the Dutch lowlands. And they're often regarded, even today, the Puritans are in a negative light, sometimes because of their Calvinism, uh, sometimes because of things that happened in America when they came over. Leland Riken, who wrote a book called The Worldly Saints, it's used in a good way that that title is, he says, no group of people has been more unjustly maligned in the 20th century than the Puritans. As a result, we approach the Puritans with an enormous baggage of cultural ingrained prejudice. So set all that prejudice aside. Forget what people have said bad about the Puritans in the last hundred years. Let's go back to the original uh, group and see what they had to say. So here's a timeline I, I believe we looked at last week. We're looking at the start of the Reformation all the way up through the end of the Puritan movement in this timeline. And so at the very beginning, 95 Theses, that's Martin Luther, he nails it to the castle church door, 1517. Then Zwingli comes along in Switzerland. Zwingli starts a Reformation there in Zurich, and then Calvin also in Switzerland and Geneva. And Calvin writes, Calvin teaches, Calvin preaches a lot. He sends out pastors to France and to America, even to Brazil. They send a couple of missionaries. And then that moves now from the writings and the preachings over into England. And Henry VIII isn't that concerned about theology. He's not that concerned about people being saved through faith alone. He's concerned about what? Getting a divorce. He wants a divorce from his wife. You can't do that in the Catholic Church. Hey, there's this new thing called Protestantism. That's not as big a deal to get a divorce in Protestantism. So he jumps on board and changes. He says, I'll change it, but just a little bit. I'll get rid of certain things I don't like, and I'll change it. And so he makes the Anglican or Church of England. And then after that, we have the Scottish Reformation happening north of there. And then now we're getting into this period that we're going to look at. You see up top, Puritans seek to purify the church. And that's really from the, about 1560 through about 1680. So about 120 years this movement lasts. And it's interesting. It thrives during a time of persecution. It thrives during a time of persecution. A time when the government does not like the Puritans, does not allow them to practice their faith according to the Bible. And it thrives. And then as soon as it's okay to do it, the whole movement sort of fades away. It just sort of fades away. And so let's talk about these 120 years here, starting with the rise of the Puritan movement. The Puritans thought that the Anglican form, really, of church government was a huge issue. That's the Episcopalian church in America. It's called Episcopalian. The way that they had all of these different forms and layers of leaders. So you have the pastor and you have these, they even call them priests in the Anglican church and the bishops and the rectors and all the way up to the archbishop, which was like the Pope and still is like the Pope of England or the English church. Now it's all over the world. Secondly, they did not like the Book of Common Prayer. And we mentioned that last week. The Book of Common Prayer is sort of a guidebook on how to do worship. It has all the prayers you're supposed to pray and in those days, that's all you could pray in church. You're supposed to pray only the prayers that are already checked out and affirmed in the Book of Common Prayer. They're not necessarily bad, but the problem is 
someone is telling you that's all you can do in church. When our guidebook is supposed to be the Bible, not man's book. And so they had an issue with that. They had an issue with the things that you had to do according to the Book of Common Prayer. And sometimes they objected to certain statements in there that they couldn't agree with theologically. So they said, look, let's revise the Book of Common Prayer or let's just get rid of it. Because it has too much in there that they disagreed with, the Roman Catholic theology at times. Many English Protestants fled during that time. We already talked about that with Bloody Mary. And there's a lot of political complications going on as well, where Puritans would leave England and try to find a place to settle. That's how they ended up in America, because they would go to places like Germany, they would go to places like Holland, and not be able to really find a place that they could settle for a long period of time. So they're influenced by Calvin, they're influenced by Swiss reformers, just like John Knox was. They come back to England after Mary's gone, after Mary dies. The persecution stops. Elizabeth allows Protestantism to progress onward. She calls herself a Protestant as well. So the Puritan theology and movement really starts going. And there's a greater devotion to Christ because of this. And there's a huge push for holiness. Because the Reformation was all about justification and the theology of justification. Well, now the question is, okay, we grew up in this Catholic culture. And it told us we had to earn our salvation. We had to earn our salvation by works. We had to work, work, work to keep our salvation. And now we're being told that we're justified through faith alone and Christ alone. So the big question becomes, all right, I've trusted in Christ, but how do I know I'm saved? How do I know when I was a kid and I told my parents that I believed in Jesus that now at the age of 30 or 40, how do I really know if I'm living as a Christian? How do I know if I'm truly saved? Was I really justified back then? Am I living a godly life now? So the Puritans would just churn out sermons and books on this issue. That's why they're so good today. Teaching material. Not devotional like stuff today, right? You go to the well, there's not a Christian bookstore anymore, is there? There used to be Lifeway and Family Christian. They all shut down because they were selling heretical stuff. And, and also because people don't want to read real Christian books anymore. But the Puritans were putting this out and you can still read it. It's better. That devotional material is good. It's theological. It's rich. It will bring you to, if you follow what they say, it will bring you to a greater personal holiness and sanctification and walk with Christ because it's biblical. The stuff today usually is Jesus calling and, and things like that. That's not even devotional, not even biblical. Some of the Puritans separated themselves. So there were different kinds of Puritans. There were Puritans within the Anglican movement, within the Anglican church, and they just didn't like the laws and, and the Book of Common Prayer. So they're called dissenters. They dissented. They did not like following it, but they stayed in the Anglican church they just themselves did not follow what the Book of Common Prayer said and what the, the queen sometimes said they should do or the archbishop. Other Puritans said, we're fed up with the whole system. We're getting out. And they separated from the Anglican church. So these were called congregationalists often because of their form of church government was not bishop, rector, archbishop. It was the congregation had elders and the congregation's elders were the authority in that local church. And they didn't have to go up to the archbishop and follow his teachings. 
And so most of the separatists were Congregationalists. Some were what we might call Reformed Baptists today. They still were Congregational, but they did not baptize infants, so they were called Baptists. They baptized adult believers. But many and most of the Puritans stayed within the Anglican Church. And some of the ones we love sometimes, we come to find out they stayed in the Anglican Church. And you wonder why. And you wonder why today there, there's people who, who stay within a system that is very hard and difficult to reform. All right, James I comes along after Elizabeth. And he's actually James VI of Scotland, but he's the closest family member that can take over the throne in England. So there was a relationship between the kings and queens of Scotland and the kings and queens of England. And the closest relative to Elizabeth, because she didn't have any children, so her closest relative is going to be James VI of Scotland. He's the sixth king with the name James in Scotland. But there's never been a king named James in England. So when he comes to reign in England, he's called James I because he's the first one with that name in England. So he's now the king of both England and Scotland. And he was from Scotland where John Knox had reformed the church. The church in Scotland is Presbyterian by this point. And people are really hoping when James comes down to reign in London that he will bring about a further reformation, that the Puritans will have a friend in government with James. Well, James gets down to London and decides he's not all that Protestant to begin with. He really just wants people to be happy and not fight in the church. And so he doesn't continue the reforms that the Puritans hoped that he might. They even petitioned him with a millinery petition, a document that would have reformed the church along Puritan lines. And it was referred to as millinery, meaning a thousand, because it had a thousand signatures from pastors and church leaders. So the movement had grown so much by James I that there is this huge push by a thousand pastors to reform the church in England. So King James met with the Puritan leaders and he had a meeting where he's trying to see what they want and to see what kind of changes they would like to see brought about in the church. This is called the Hampton Court Conference, and it takes place in 1604. And he's largely cited against them. He pretty much said, look, I hear what you're saying, but I don't agree with you. We have these men already in power in the church, and we're going to keep them in power. You Puritans need to be quiet and not cause such a fuss. Well, he also decided the Puritans had the Geneva study Bible, the first study Bible ever produced. It's like, let's, let's take the MacArthur study Bible today or the ESV study Bible. What's at the bottom of every page of the study Bible? Notes. And those notes kind of guide you in interpreting the passage. Well, in the Geneva study Bible, it said some things about monarchs. And monarchs had to be submissive to the rule of the Bible. In other words, there was so much in the footnotes about how kings and queens should submit to the Bible and that church leaders had authority over the church, not the kings and queens, that James said, you know what, we're going to solve this problem of the Geneva Study Bible being spread around England. We are going to do a new translation and take out the footnotes and make sure we get the translation right. You know what that's called? King James version of the Bible. So King James I does start a new translation at this conference. He decides to do that in 1604. His advisors in the Anglican church say this would be a good idea. And it was originally to 
make a move against the Puritans, which is kind of interesting because most Puritans end up later preaching from the King James Bible, still making good arguments against monarchs who won't submit to Scripture. So there he is in his beautiful wardrobe here, King James. I don't know how long it took people to get dressed back then, but wow. I mean, I have to rush sometimes just to get a suit and tie on. Of course, they had all kinds of people helping them, right? They probably got one guy tying up his socks down there, another putting his coat on. So here's a couple of paintings of King James. You know, in in church history, before the Reformation, a lot of the paintings and things were done hundreds of years after. So we don't really know what the person looked like. By the time we get to this state in church history, these are pretty close. Sometimes they're a little later, but they're pretty close when it comes to what the person actually looked like. So he did have reddish hair. Puritans during this time continued to reject anything that seemed to be Roman Catholic. They wanted to get away from the Roman Catholic traditions and teachings. And the Book of Common Prayer was always the big issue. It had too much Roman Catholic teaching and sacraments and all these things in there. So as a result of that conference they had with the king, James made it clear that he's going to support the Anglican bishops. He's going to support the Common Book of Prayer. And so the Anglican church began to then persecute Puritans. They began to make sure, like today, there's some, there's some Arminian churches. When they hire a new pastor, they will ask him, what do you think about Calvinism? And they will ask him all these questions about election. And if he answers them in the affirmative on those, they will not hire the guy. Well, worse in those days, if you were in the Anglican church as a pastor, and turns out you believe Puritan theology, then you might be fired or at least demoted. You can no longer preach on Sunday mornings. You get the afternoon class, you know, when nobody comes back to church or they're asleep from lunch. And the interesting thing is over time, the Puritan lectures, which were just Puritan sermons giving at a, given at a different time, were sometimes more well attended than Sunday morning service. So people wouldn't come in the morning because it was just all you know, priests saying this and that and the Anglican mass communion type thing and a short little homily. Then you come back in the afternoon and you hear the hour and hour and a half sermon from your Puritan lecturer. And that was where the meat was. That was where the Bible teaching was. So Henry Smith Williams writes, persecution now began because of James I siding with the Anglican bishops, which except in the absence of fire and rope, was as fierce as Bloody Mary. So they're not burning people at the stake, but they are persecuting them, pushing them out of the church, these mostly pastors. Spies wormed their way into conventicles. These were little meetings that would happen in the pastor's home. So, okay, you can't preach in church as a Puritan. So the pastor says, well, y'all just come over and we'll have a Bible study at our house. Then the police knock on the door, the king's soldiers, and say, nope, that's against the law. And everybody would take off running in different areas across the field and uh, prayer meetings same thing preachers without a license were thrown into prison so that's one way they could police this is you had to have a license a license comes from the anglican church and to get a license you got to affirm the book of common prayer so 300 rectors and vicars were turned out of their livings because in the anglican church if you had a the title of rector or vicar and you were a Puritan, you would then get kicked out, which meant you had no income. The church wasn't paying your salary, and you made no living. So you were going to starve, and your family was going to starve. Fines and dungeons were the fate of all who resisted 
the law. So there's the Hampton Court Palace today. I think the Queen still goes there, right, sometimes? I'm not a big modern British history. I think when Trump went over to visit, this is where they marched out in front with all the... Remember when he was standing there? All these troops are going by him and the Queen, and they're chatting. And I'm thinking, how does she walk out there on that gravel? You know, she's, what, 90s now? So here is the final version of the King James. They, this would be the page that you opened and you first saw something in writing. The Holy Bible, continuing, containing, sorry, containing the Old Testament and the New. That old English spelling sometimes gets me there. Newly translated out of the original, the original tongues, meaning languages. Because everybody knew that tongues were languages up until 1901. And with the former translations diligently compared. So don't worry, people. We have compared closely with the previous translations, which were Tyndale and the Bishop's Bible and the Great Bible, previous English translations. Yeah, I can't see the rest of that. But 1611, it comes out. And the, the main man who oversaw that was Richard Bancroft. He was the archbishop. Remember, the archbishop is the highest office in the Anglican church. He is like the bishop of Rome over the Catholic church. The archbishop is head of the Anglican church. So he oversaw it. It is a decent translation, even though the king wanted to kind of get that Puritan interpretation out of there. They ended up having to stick with the transcripts they had in Greek and Hebrew. And it is a good translation. It is very literal for that day. People say today, well, it's too hard to read. That's true, because we're not used to speaking like that. But even in that day, that's not the way people talked. What they did is, when they were translating it, they said, we want to make this sound beautiful. Now, what's the most beautiful writing in the English language in 1611, before this Bible comes out? Shakespeare. Even today, people say, it's the mo Shakespeare and the King James Bible are the most beautiful things ever written in English. So that kind of flowery language gets put into the King James, even though people aren't really speaking like that in those days. They weren't really talking like that in Shakespeare's day, but it was a lot closer. This is much later than Shakespeare. But they want to bring that language in because it's poetic and it's beautiful. And even today, many of those phrases are in our American culture, in our Christian culture. We're used to it. I find sometimes the King James is much more literal than most of the uh, phrase for phrase translations of today. And so sometimes I'll even mention it in a sermon. These are good translations of the Bible that they did. A group of men worked on it. Sometimes they, they did translate things strangely. Other times they didn't have great manuscripts compared to today. But it's still useful to study sometimes. Now James I dies and a new relative comes on the scene, Charles I. He came to the throne in 16, uh, 1625. And here's the problem with Charles I. He'd gotten married a year before he became king, and he marries a princess from France. Well, at, in France, everybody's Roman Catholic. They had already persecuted and pushed out all the Protestants. And particularly in the royal court, everybody is Catholic. So Henrietta Marie de Bourbon of France was a staunch Roman Catholic. And she did not like the Puritans. So in 1629, Charles now comes into conflict with Parliament because most of Parliament leans more Puritan than it does Anglican. And he is 
pretty much being pulled along by his wife's theological traditions. And so he says, well, I'll take care of parliament. I'll just dissolve it. That way I don't have to listen to what they say. And I'm not, if the king doesn't call parliament into session, then it can't meet. So for 11 years, there's no parliament. And the people aren't going to be happy about that. The representatives in parliament aren't going to be happy about that. Because even though you had a king, just like today, there's a queen. But who makes most of the laws today in England? Parliament. Right? All the laws are made by parliament. Decisions. The king just signs off on them. Well, it, he had a little bit more power than the queen does today. Charles did. Obviously, because he dissolved parliament. But he still has to have parliament to affirm the way the government is going. So this is going to cause major political issues. There he is as a boy. They often did dress more feminine when they were younger. And then there he is. He was very much into style. Most of the monarchs were in these days. But Charles I was all about style. He really liked the French style. So he's got the French beard and mustache and hair. He liked people to paint him in different scenes. So he's got this charger, this white horse that he's riding in on. And his armor, even though they didn't still fight in full plate armor, they would wear it for ceremonies. Here he is in his, uh, is it ermine? Minks, minks, yeah, a lot of minks. Took a lot of minks they killed to make that white cape there. Very soft though. This is what all the wealthy people wore during this time. And they would have their paintings done with these mink coats on. Here's his wife, Henrietta Marie. A couple of paintings. I mean, they're really getting going with the paintings of famous people at this time. So it soon became clear that Charles wished to move the church in a more sacramental direction. He wants to move it back towards Roman Catholic theology and do all the sacraments. And I'm sure he had some good conversations with his wife about that at home since she was Roman Catholic. And she wants to, he wants to move it away from all this Calvinism, all this idea of election and predestination. And so he appoints a man to help with that, to supervise that. And this man is William Laud. William Laud becomes the Archbishop of the Anglican Church. It's called the Archbishop of Canterbury because that's the cathedral where he is, where his seat is, where his office stays. And so Charles appoints Laud in 1633. And this guy, he's wicked. He really wants to persecute the Puritans. So he becomes Archbishop, 1633. He disliked the Puritans because he said they're causing division. And the way you take care of division and factiousness is you rout it out, you smash it, you get it out of the church. So there he is looking pretty serious there. He persecuted Puritan pastors who deviated from what was prescribed in the Book of Common Prayer or if they preached on predestination. That's how you knew they were a Puritan because they would preach on predestination. And since you could ferret out the Calvinists, it was easier to persecute them because they would preach right from Romans 8, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, talk about this evil thing called predestination. And that was banned. You could not do it at that time. You could not preach on predestination. We'd be in trouble today, right? As a result, people said, some people said, we've separated from the church. We're leaving the country so this was called the Great Migration under William Laud from 1630 to 1640. About 20,000 Puritans left England and eventually they ended up in America. They wanted a new place where they could have freedom to worship as they saw fit. 
a free country, even though it was still ruled by England, there wasn't this kind of oversight like there was in England. In England, if you are a Puritan, you were causing problems with the government because the king was against the parliament, and that was Puritans against Anglo-Catholics. Well, in America, that's a free place. That's the Wild West. You know, you can go out there, even though it's a colony of England. You can worship as you see fit. You can start churches because who cares if you stir up political issues across the ocean, right? That's not a big deal, is it? To stir up a little political division. It will become a big deal by the 1700s. When Charles tried to enforce these restrictions in Scotland, though, the Scots said, forget it. We're not going to put up with it. The church in Scotland was very Presbyterian by then. John Knox had really fired them up and shown them the way. And Charles said, okay, fine, I'll sign a, a treaty. I'll sign a truce. You can have freedom to govern your church in Scotland as you would like. He had no time to start a war, to start a, a front of fighting up in Scotland. So he has a conflict with the Scots that really forces him, though, to summon parliament. A, a political conflict is all this is. He's got to sign this truce. And so he summons the parliament in 1640. He summons them in April. He summons them again in October. Now, they're meeting, and all this tension is just building in the parliament. He doesn't really want them there, but he's got to summon them to do these political things. And on January 4th, 1642, he comes into the House of Commons, one of the houses of parliament, with an armed force. And he says, you guys don't want to do what I want? I'll arrest you. I'll just bring my army in and arrest you. And so he comes in, he's going to arrest the members of parliament. But the men he was looking for had already heard about it, so they escaped. Now you can imagine the tension is really boiling, it's rising. This would be like if President Biden goes into the Senate and starts arresting all the conservative members of the Senate. The result was a great embarrassment because now he's done all this work to arrest these men and they're not even able to be captured. So that makes him look weak. Now the people are starting to get upset at him in London. So he escapes from London and he doesn't feel safe there anymore. He feels like the people are going to try to kill him. And he takes his army with him and starts to assemble a bigger army to come back and fight against parliament. This isn't going to end well, is it? So here now we come to what's called the English Civil War. The English Civil War. These conflicts eventually led to the English Civil War because you have the king and parliament, the two powers in the government, fighting against one another. And so the Puritans were mostly supportive of parliament because most of the people in parliament were the average common people or, or the lords in, of, of areas that were Puritan. And the, the lords who were in parliament are also Puritans, sometimes Puritan pastors. You have bishops that are in parliament that are Puritans. So both sides, Charles and parliament, raised armies. It's time to fight. And they start fighting in October of 1642. That'll last for four years. They finally defeat Charles I and they capture him. Then they make sure before that they, they caught William Laud and they execute him for all the crimes that he had committed against the Puritans. So during this time, before they've even captured Charles, because Charles is on the run and they've taken over, the, the, the parliament has taken over the country basically, they say, look, let's really put a document in place better than the Book of Common Prayer that is Puritan, that is more biblical. Let's assemble the best pastors in the land to work on this. And so this is called the Westminster Assembly. 
because they they met there in Westminster, a part of London. And they met for six years. So this is like one of the ancient councils almost, how they would meet for a decade to try to figure out doctrine. They meet and they come up with four documents called the Westminster Standards. They come up with a confession of faith. So there had been confessions of faith before that, a doctrinal statement saying here's what we believe. But this is one of the most precise ones. The Belgic Confession, for example, is, is very poetic. And I like to quote from that because it, it sounds good. But Westminster is more precise when it comes to theology and citing certain verses. They also said we need to train new believers and we need to train children. So they came up with a larger catechism. Catechism, you might be familiar with that in the Roman Catholic Church. Catechism is what the Roman Catholics will train their children by. And it's not a bad word. Catechism just means teaching. The catechesis, the teaching. And what, what you would do is ask the children a question and they are to memorize the answer and repeat it to you. So they have memorized the answer and they repeat it to you. Well, the Puritans picked this up. Calvin also, Luther, they wrote their catechisms. Even Spurgeon later would, would work on a catechism, editing a, a previous Baptist catechism. And so the larger catechism, I don't remember, anybody, anybody memorize all those as a kid? How many questions in the larger catechism? It's like 300. Well, if you got one that big, that's for the older kids. you got to have something for normal people. The shorter catechism then gets put in place. Another document here, another book really to teach. And, and it has less questions. The answers are a little bit shorter. And still today, people use the Westminster Shorter Catechism to train up their children. We've had our kids memorize definitions out of there as well. And then lastly, the Directory of Public Worship. How do we conduct worship in the church according to the Bible? Not the Book of Common Prayer, but the Bible. And so they summarize the Bible's teaching on public worship in this directory of public worship. These changes made by the Westminster Assembly to the Church of England are eventually revoked in 1660. We're going to find out that the Puritans and the Parliament get defeated by Charles II, the son of Charles I, and, or they ask Charles I to come back. And so... Uh, in that time, they throw the Westminster standards out. And guess where they end up? In the Church of Scotland. So Scotland is really the inheritors of this Westminster Assembly. They did have some Presbyterians from Scotland there, but it was mostly made up of English pastors. And even today, the official doctrinal statement of any conservative Presbyterian church is what? Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, sometimes they don't always hold to it, but that is the official, I think that's the official doctrinal statement of both the Orthodox and the PCA, maybe some other smaller Presbyterian denominations. So there's the famous painting of that. They met in what's called the Jerusalem Chamber, and they hashed all this out, all these pastors. So Charles is in prison, Charles I, and while in confinement in 1648, he decides he's going to try one more time to take over the government, even though he's in jail. So he, he can write letters and talk with people. And he incites a second, he tries to incite a second civil war. But again, Parliament quickly put that down and emerged victorious. So the way they're going to deal with Charles is to bring him to trial. They bring him to trial. That's the drawing here. And bring him to trial before Parliament. They convict him of treason. And they chop off his head January 29th. And this is very interesting if you read the Puritans. Even the Puritans are debating on whether that's, this is right. Should he be killed? 
Should he just remain in prison? Should they let him go? There's all this talk, even by people who side with parliament. Is it the right thing to do? And then after they chop off his head, there's this feeling of guilt with a lot of Puritan writers as to, did we do the right thing? So there it is. You can you can kind of see the headless guy up on the stage there and stuff squirting out of where his head was. Supposedly, the, you know, they hold up the head and show it to everybody. Somebody's passed out down there in the bottom right. I think a woman has passed out from watching that. I'm sure many of us would as well. So after Charles dies, Parliament needs a ruler, but we don't want a king. So for the first time, England doesn't have a king. Who are we going to promote as our leader? Well, they give oversight to Oliver Cromwell. I shouldn't have a period there. That's Oliver Cromwell. And you remember, we've already come across one Cromwell before. He is related to that man. Cromwell leads the army. He did really well in the Civil War. He put down that resistance that occurred later in 1649. And then he's given the title Lord Protector from 53 to 58. So he's called the Lord Protector. He's just our, our protector. Not Lord as in Jesus, but you know in England they, they use the word Lord as an official nobility title. And so he's the protector of the nation. Well, he's a Puritan. He's, he's very much into Puritan beliefs. He's a little bit more congregational than he is uh, Anglican Puritan. And he would have his own personal Puritan pastor come and preach to him and his army. He starts a, a new army called the New Model Army. And they, they're the ones who defeat the, the royalists in the Civil War. And he's descended from Thomas Cromwell. We talked about him earlier. From Thomas Cromwell's older sister, who had been the chief minister to, to Henry VIII, Thomas had. Cromwell, though, he starts a fight with the Irish Catholics. And it's kind of interesting. England had already taken some of Ireland by this point. Even today, right? It's divided. You've got Northern Ireland and Ireland. Northern Ireland is part of the UK. Ireland is just Ireland, the Irish people. Well, the reason that the UK has part of Ireland is because before the time of the English Civil War, they had taken part of the island. And Cromwell is going to go over there and make sure that the Catholics there are defeated so they don't start an, an uprise and come over to England and start another war. So he takes his army over there. And, and there are stories where he really massacred, I think it's in Dublin, or one of the towns, one of the cities there in Ireland. He really massacred them wiped out everybody. And people were saying, well, look at, look at this Puritan. Here's a Puritan leader, and he's doing this to the people. But on the other hand, he also had guys like John Owen, the Puritan of Puritans, come and, and preach to the soldiers. He had men like Thomas Goodwin, who came and preached to the soldiers and to Parliament. And, and it's even debated on that massacre, if it was really him who called it, what exactly happened. But Cromwell is also known for a famous statement. I told you last week, back then in paintings, they would take out all your bad features, right? Today, we just call that Photoshop. Used to it was Photoshop. Now it's other things probably, right? Is it still Photoshop where you, you make yourself look a lot better than you really do? And back then, the painters wouldn't paint your defects. And he said, no, this is a new era. I want people to paint me as I really am. Paint me warts and all. And so that phrase stuck around. And he did have a lot of warts. He had warts on his, his eyelids, big ones on his chin, big one on his chin and on his forehead as well. So he dies in 1658. And he has succeeded for a short time under his son, 
Richard. But Richard's not really a ruler. He's not a leader. And so the people are tired of Richard after one year. They ask him to resign. Well, we've had a parliamentary-run country under the Lord Protector for about 20 years, the golden era of Puritans. But now the thing's going to fall apart. People start to get worried. What do people usually do when they start to get worried? They'll promote anyone as a leader. So they ask Charles I, who they beheaded, they ask his son to come back, who had been hiding in France. Please come back, we need a king. Because in England and most European countries then, they felt like the Bible said they needed a king. They needed a monarch to reign. This was the time of the monarchies. And they asked Charles II to come back. Please come back. Please make sure the country doesn't devolve into civil war again. Restore the country. So he comes back. In 1661, they dig up Cromwell's body and they execute him posthumously. So things are not starting off well for Charles II. This is not a good sign. Then Parliament, under his control, begins to issue anti-Puritan legislation. He throws out the Westminster Assembly, all the writings and theology that they wrote down. We're not going to use those in the church anymore. We're going back to the way it was under my father that you guys killed. We're going back to the Book of Common Prayer. And by this point, Parliament is going right along with him. Most of the people in Parliament are now Anglican and not as Puritan. The Royalists, we'll call them Anglican Royalists, people who support the king. So he's even more French and more fancy than his father. I mean, look at that hairdo. There's that ball. Remember I talked about that in previous lectures, even from Charlemagne on. What does the ball with the cross symbolize? Christian king reigning over the world is kind of the idea there. The monarch. And, and England does continue to gain power up through the, the 1800s and, and be all over the world with their colonies. After 1662, the Puritans in England are now known by everybody as dissenters. Those who dissented against the Book of Common Prayer. And the monarchy is now restored. Charles II is in power and he is going to take care of this once and for all. If you're a Puritan, don't show up for work tomorrow. You're no longer a pastor in the Anglican church. Kicked him out. But he gave him a date. You know, he gave him their notice. I don't remember how long it was. But in, on such and such a date, you are no longer a pastor of this church. And this is called the Great Ejection. Because 2,400 Puritan pastors were kicked out of the church. And they knew the date, so they preached an ejection sermon on that date. And it's not, most of them, you can get a little book, Puritan paperback. I think we have it in our, in our set of paperbacks in there where it's called ejection, Great Ejection Sermons. It's not political. They're not railing at the king. You know, they're, they're talking about scripture. They're talking about, they're preaching the gospel. Uh, these Puritans are uh, dissenters. Later, they're going to be called nonconformists. So, so some, a few, a very few Puritans decided they could stay and submit to the Book of Common Prayer. 2,400 said we cannot sign that document, and they got kicked out. Those who had already left, the separatists, the Congregationalists, or Baptists, they were fine. They didn't get kicked out because they're not under control of the government. The government controls the Anglican Church, and so they could tell people, 
who their pastor was. So the dissenters formed their own separate congregations, and then they faced more legal consequences. Such nonconformity would not be tolerated until the Toleration Act was passed after the Glorious Revolution in 1689. So what happened was, these pastors were kicked out of their churches, they went home to their family farm or whatever, and they said, we'll have church there. Well, then another law is passed, and it says within, I think it was within 10 miles, or 5 miles, then 10 miles, you cannot come within 5 to 10 miles of your previous church parish where you were a pastor. So now they had to switch and move to a different town, and they just kept pushing these great Puritans like John Owen. We'll talk about him next week. He's just out of a job. Let's talk about the new world. Let's, let's go to America. Next week, I'm going to go through some Puritans and recommend some books and tell you some of my favorites. And then after that, we're, we're just going to go through the line of American church history and leave England behind. To the New World. It was through the English Puritan movement that Christian settlers came to live in America. So if it wasn't for that persecution, people still would have come to America, but it wouldn't have had the theological influence that our country had in its founding if it hadn't been for these persecutions happening in England. The very first pilgrims began as a group of separatist Puritans. They left England due to religious persecution. They went to Amsterdam thinking that they could live sort of as a colony there. But the problem is the culture was very ungodly. It was Christian culture. But they found that all their kids, friends in Amsterdam, were very worldly. So we left England to get away from the persecution. And now our teenagers are running around with these ungodly teenagers in Amsterdam. We're concerned about that. So they finally got the charter to go to New England and they left on the Mayflower in 1620. They arrived in New England. After Charles II came to the throne, many Puritans left. They, they thought the persecution was going to get worse. They started that great migration that we talked about earlier with 20,000 people. They are responsible for bringing the Reformation to America. There were settlers in America before that, but they were mostly non-religious or Anglican. When the Puritans come, they bring all that Reformation teaching. They bring Calvinistic theology. They bring the preaching of the Scriptures and the Westminster theology and all these other confessions that came along, but mostly Westminster. There's a famous painting of the Mayflower. Here's their route as they come in. They start going around Cape Cod looking for a place to settle. They eventually settle on Plymouth, and the Plymouth colony is the little boot sticking out there and eventually that's going to become the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So now they're free to worship as they would like and so they start churches and a local government where they say this is now according to the Bible. This is a new land, a new country and we can worship and we can set up government that best fits what the teaching of the Bible says. You can go there today and see the Plymouth Colony. They've, they've recreated some of these cabins that they lived in. But things didn't go so well those first few years. Even though the Mayflower landed in 1620, half of all the pilgrims who came would not make it. As far as beliefs, half of them were separatists under the leadership of John Robinson, William Brewster, William Bradford. William Bradford is often remembered at Thanksgiving. He's got a, a famous name and history behind him because he was the governor. The separatists had been declared unwelcome by the king. This was under King James. And, and they 
came under that persecution. They arrived in Massachusetts, 1620. We've been through most of this already. But the first winter, it was so harsh that 45 out of the 102 died. The harsh winter. There, there's no food. They weren't prepared. Uh, much colder than, than it is in England. They thought, well, it's the same level on the map, you know. Can't be that much colder. They didn't understand how the cold fronts worked and things. By the following November, there's only 53 people still alive out of the original. That's where they have the first Thanksgiving that we still, we still celebrate a Thanksgiving today based on that. It really would have been some kind of harvest celebration. We often hear the story, and it's true, that they were out of food and, and the Indians brought food. Well, they had some food that they had planted and harvested. It just wasn't very much. And so that was a time when the natives did come and bring them things like wild turkey and such, and they were able to, to have a meal together. It's estimated that roughly 300 people were living in Plymouth by 1630. Many more Puritans are going to come and join them as time goes on, especially under Charles II. And there's going to be some very famous theologians and pastors like John Cotton, Roger Williams, Thomas Hooker, and others become spiritual and political leaders. Because you can be both in America. In England, they don't want the Puritans messing with the government. That already started a civil war. But in America, many of the, the pastors will also be political leaders. John Cotton was the first prominent American pastor and theologian. He wrote commentaries. He wrote theological works. He had a lot to say that was very Puritan. In fact, he was trained under Richard Sibbs, a famous Puritan in England. And he brought that teaching to America and in the Congregational Church there in Boston, he, he taught that theology. Now, there's a statue of William Bradford in the Plymouth Colony. You can go and see that today. First governor of Plymouth Colony. And when you read his writing, he has a book, you read it, you almost think, is this guy a governor or a pastor? Because the theology is so prevalent in his teaching, even on government. And what we ought to give thanks for in the first Thanksgiving, he writes about that. Here's a, a painting we've probably all seen. The Puritans, that's a little nicer log cabin than they really had, as we saw. That's more of what we would expect today when we go on a vacation to a log cabin. But here you can see the Native Americans are coming here and, and, and joining with them, having a, a meal. So the city of Boston is, is founded in 1630. The first church of Boston is founded in the same year by a man named John Winthrop. Today, though, the church is very liberal there. So the very first Puritan church in America official, formal, big church, is now heretical. Unitarian, Universalist church. From 1633 to 1552, John Mather was the teaching elder at the church. The second church of Boston breaks off from the first church in 1649, and that's where Increase Mather, Cotton Mather, and Samuel Mather all go. And so some early congregational Puritan churches there. Let's talk a bit about American Puritanism and the two minutes I got left here. So Plymouth Colony, we've already looked at that. I won't go back. Let's look at the second bullet point here. 1636, Harvard is established. What is Harvard University for? Training up Puritan pastors. You couldn't go to a Anglican school in England if you're a Puritan. You couldn't get into Oxford. You couldn't get into Cambridge. They only let Anglicans in. If you were a dissenter or a separatist especially, you could not get in. But in America, we can start a new school that's just for training Puritan pastors. So it's established. It wasn't long, though, before it goes liberal. 
And today, the theology taught at the Harvard University Theology School is very heretical. Roger Williams left the colony because he had Baptist leanings and he was being persecuted. So he leaves and starts his own group. He, he founded Rhode Island. The first Baptist church in America is put there. So the initial generation of Puritans in New England were very devout. They were very fervent. The people didn't always like some of their pastor's fervency. We saw some of that with the history of the, with the witch trials. I won't get into that, but it is a very interesting history there. Subsequent generations, though, are not going to have that kind of zeal for the Lord that their forefathers had. And it's always like this. You have a generation where everybody is, is very much into theology and the Bible, and then the next generation slides back a bit. And you see that today. There was this huge Calvinist movement in America. Let's get back to Reformed theology. And now what's happening to many of those churches? Right? They're falling into either liberal theology or woke theology, and they're often watering down the gospel. Well, this happened in America in that second generation, and they really did not agree all the time even with the theology. They got tired of the preaching. And so you have this man, Solomon Stoddard, who becomes a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, and he's a pastor there for 55 years. And he says, you know what, we're going to solve this problem. We have all these second generation, third generation Puritans, and they're really not showing that they're saved. They're really not showing that they're true born again believers, but they've been baptized in the church. They've been members of the church their whole life. And they shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. But he says, we'll make a halfway covenant. We'll make a halfway agreement that they can take the Lord's Supper, even though they're not truly regenerate and they don't even claim to be Christians. So they can be members of the church. That was Essentially, in a nutshell, the halfway covenant. It provided partial church membership for people who followed the rules and creeds, even if their life didn't match up. You can go out there and live like the world, but as long as you agree to our doctrinal statement in your, in your mind, and you agree to follow the rules of the church, we'll give you communion. We will let you be a partial member of the church. Now, Jonathan Edwards, his grandson is going to come along and completely reject that and get fired from the church because he would not abide by the halfway covenant. All right, so there it is in summary as we conclude. We're following this line. You have Luther. That comes over to eventually the Reformation. comes to Zwingli and Calvin's Geneva and Zurich. That comes to England. And we have all these branches now that we're following, the English-speaking churches. Presbyterians are in Scotland, the Anglicans, and they have a strong Arminian influence that begins to affect them during this time. The, the Puritans split off. You have the separatists who really split from the Anglican church and Baptists even further. So where are we at as a church today? We follow the line of the Puritans, the separatists, and even the more reformed Baptists. So we're along that line, not with the Anabaptist influence though. A couple of resources that I recommend you pick up when you have opportunity in our bookstore. They're Puritans by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Kind of an overview of why we should care about the Puritans and some people even going back to John Knox that he really admired. And then a newer book, Nate Pickowicz and Dustin Benji, The American Puritans. This is a newer book. There's not been a lot written on the American Puritans. A little paperback. This is a good book to read. All right, I'm over, so let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for our study here. I pray that even though many have rejected the biblical teaching brought to America in these early years, that we would reach back and study the lives of these men, study the lives and the theology, and, and follow them. 
Follow them by seeking the scriptures and purifying the church according to the word of God. Help us to do this, O Lord. Amen.